good morning. So it's, I was gone last week. It is great to be back uh, with you. And if you are used to us being in the book of Hebrews, I'm, I'm glad that's what you're used to. But we're going to take a break from that and spend a couple of weeks in what we call training camp, which is a time where we set aside some time each year to focus on what the Bible says about uh, fundamentals of Christ-centered relationships. And um, so we're going to be doing that for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but if you don't know, our, our tip, we typically go through books of the Bible on a verse-by-verse level. And so that's really important to us. I love that. So when we don't do that, when we move away from that, it's for something the elders see as really important. And this is one of those things. And let me just give you one of the reasons why. One of the reasons why we do focus on this the way we do is because we believe that God has designed us to flourish in relationships where people allow the self-sacrificial, self-giving love of God to move through them to others. And that the primary ways, the primary relationships in which God has created for that to happen, for us to see the beauty and the goodness of self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-giving love, exchange and relationships is through marriage and through the family and then also through the church. So the, the, the marriage and family and the church are what God's designed for us to be the places we experience that. And, and I think what is so significant about this is this is not just kind of how Christians flourish. It's not just sort of how people that in, you know, in, in smaller communities of, of parents and families and churches, but this is actually how everybody flourishes. Like everybody in our city, everybody in our community, to the degree that we have people in this place that allow the self-surrendering, self-giving, self-sacrificing love of God to come through us to others, everybody's going to flourish to this. And so this is something that impacts beyond us to the community around us and within our church. These are really important things for us. Um, and, and so, uh, since since we're gonna so we're gonna focus on marriage and parenting for the next couple of weeks. And you know, normally, I think every time I've done this, I focused started on marriage and then gone to parenting. But we just did a parent child dedication, so we're gonna start with parenting today. Seemed appropriate. So here's what I'm gonna try to do. Uh, I'm just gonna try to remind us of some of the things that the Bible tells us about parenting. Uh, and then uh, I want to do there are really two big things there. And then I'm gonna bring up some challenges that I think are challenges that parents need to be thinking about, praying about, we need to be focused on talking about as a church at the end, okay? So uh, that's what I'm going to try to do. And so the first thing I want us to to remind us of about what the Bible says about parenting is one of the most fundamental things I think we see all the time, and that is that children are a gift from God, right? The Bible tells that one of the places in the Bible that says that the most clearly is Psalm 127, verse 3, uh, which says, behold, children are a heritage. That word heritage is um, an inheritance or a gift, or it's a, a gift given within a relationship for a long-term benefit. So it can be a heritage, gift, inheritance. It's all that all come, combined there. So children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, right? So, so that's a pretty standard thing. If you've been around church, you've heard that before. You've heard people talk about that before. Uh, and so I, I, almost, I typically thought, well, that's just kind of what everybody's like, duh, everybody kind of gets that. Until uh, the, I saw that uh, last January, Time Magazine did a story about some Pew research that was done that just surprised me a little bit. And the research showed this. And so that right now among current parents, 
88% of current parents see the financial independence of their child as much more important than marriage and parenting. So, so 88% see financial independence as either extremely or very important. Only 21% see being married as extremely or very important. Only 20% see having children as extremely or very important. And so uh, I don't think it's a given anymore that people kind of see uh, children as a gift from God. And I think one of the things that's happening here is people are missing the beauty that comes within the relationships where the self-giving love of God shows up to other people. Like think about, think about your own, think about your own growing up years. Think about your own kind of relationships. Like there is this, the, the, the times we're like, oh, this is so good. The times we feel blessed, the times that that whole relationship gives us this beautiful picture of something beyond this world is, is in the context of this God-empowered exchange of self-giving love back and forth to each other in, in just lots of different mundane, simple ways. And it's just, it's just beautiful. Like, like, you know, we'll paint pictures of these little mundane scenes that happen inside of a family, and our heart is drawn to that because we kind of have the sense of, you know, that, that we're assuming that context of that self-giving love back and forth, which is what kind of creates a beauty and a joy there. And I think people are missing that. I think one of the reasons that they believe that money is better than family is because they're just not seeing that. And I think one of the gifts that we can give to the people around us is pictures of that. So, so I think that's one of the reasons we need to kind of hang on to the fact that uh, the children are a gift from the Lord. But another one is this, and even a kind of a deeper one is this. Uh, we're called to be like Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're called to be like Jesus. Jesus really loved kids. Like Jesus had a high value of children. One of the places that we see that is in Matthew 18, five through six, where he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's an that's like a threat. That's a big threat. Like that's a huge, and that's a like, don't mess with what I love thing right here. And so, so this is one of those powerful statements of Jesus saying, they mean a lot to me. And so I, I, want, I want us to see that if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to have a, a deep love for children. But also for those of you who are one of the little ones who have been hurt by others, I just, I just want you to hear this real quick, that the same passion that will judge those who have harmed children will heal the children who have been harmed, okay? So in eternity... The very same passion that Jesus has that children not be harmed is the kind of passion that you will feel and the redemption of the harm you've experienced. I just need you to know that and hear that and believe that, all right? Uh, and so we, we also, though, we just, I just want us all to hang on to the fact, regardless of your childhood, regardless of what you've seen, I want us all to hang on to the fact that children really are a gift from God. So uh, I, want, I want us to appreciate the, the, ways, the easy ways it is for children to be gifts to us, right? So easy ways. I think about what are the easy ways? You don't have to tell me, but what are the easy ways children are a gift? Like their, their fascination and wonder, like the way a child can like show you how fascinating an ant is when you forgot, right? They are pretty fascinating if you look them through the eyes of a kid, right? I mean, that's, that's stuff is great. I mean, all that's one of their, like the laughter and joy of a child is clearly a gift that's really, really easy to, to grasp hold of. Uh, another gift that uh, the parent-child relationship gives is it gives the parent an opportunity to think through what do I believe is worth living for and dying for? 
Because with a child, we're given the opportunity to convey to somebody who's going to outlive us, this is what I believe is worth living for and dying for. That's a huge gift for us to be able to define that and to pass that on. And so, so those are some of the easy ways it, 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 that we can see children as a gift. But I also want to, just to remind us of this. Children are a gift even when parenting them is really, really hard. When you are exhausted and you are exasperated, when you're confused, when your heart is broken, children are still a gift. And the reason that they are is because in the moments when you've just gone to past the end of yourself in parenting, and it's just so hard, those are the moments when you can turn to God and you can say, okay, am I really willing to be like you in giving myself away at the level that Jesus gave himself away? Am I, am I really willing to let you, God, give me your self-surrendered, self-giving, sacrificial love to the child that has exhausted me? And, and, and as we respond with yes to that, as we say, God, I'll be like you even in this. I will receive from you what I don't have to give. I'll receive your self-giving, self-surrendering, self-sacrificing love for them. That one expands our own experience of that. And it enables us to see God show up through us in, in, in ways that are clearly not us. Like the miracle of seeing God give you a love you didn't have for your child is an enormous gift from God. And so, so even in the really hard, even in the heartbreaking parts, that's still a gift. Children are still a gift from God. I want us to hang on to that. That's really important for us, okay? I also want us to know that, um, that while children are a gift from God, they're a gift we share with God because children ultimately belong to God, just like you and I ultimately belong to God. Uh, so the Bible tells us that um, Psalm 24, 1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That would be you and your kids. Uh, Romans eleven thirty six says, for from, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, so ultimately, our children belong to God. They have been entrusted to us for a time. But, but ultimately, they're going to outlive us. If, if God's, by God's grace, most of our children will outlive us. And, uh, and we'll be able to, uh, to see God sustain his ownership of all of them. So God owns our kids. Uh, but also, inside this is the encouraging thing is God has a purpose and a plan for them. Like they belong to him, they're important to him, and he has a purpose for them. So Psalm 139, 16 tells us, uh, David is writing and says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is when he's being created in his mother's womb. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And part of what I want you to see is that not only does God have a plan for your child, but the, the body that God has given your child is part of his plan for your child. All right, this is really important. It's really important for you to get this. It's really important for you to help your, your child understand this, that God has a plan for them, and he has given them the body that fits that plan. So when your kid is uh, in stages of their life for like, I don't even know what was up with, why do I have the body I have? I'm not really, I wish I could trade it in for a better one, right? I mean, we go, when kids are going through all those things, I think it's so important for parents to be able to remind them, listen, God has a plan for you. And the body that he gave you matches that plan. And it's a good plan for you. 
Okay? Receive what he's given you in your body as a gift from God that matches his plan. Uh, the other thing I want you to see is Ephesians 2.10, which says, We're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has good works, good things for our children to walk into. So because that's true, the most important question we can ask as a parent is, what does God want my child or children to become, right? He created them. He, they belong to him. He has a plan for them. So, so what, what does he want them to become? So, so let me tell you the question I need you to get rid of to replace with this, all right? Because I think the tenth, I know for me as a parent, the question that was the most tempting one for me to have as the most important question for my kid is what is, what is it that they're going to be good at that will sort of set them apart as kids, you know, make them better than other kids, that make me look good as a parent and kind of gives them praise from other people, right? What, what's that going to be, right? It's so tempting for us to say, you know, what, what's going to make my kids stand out in a way that they're praised to make that the most important thing, which really is not a good thing because what we've done at that point is we've really taken their self-esteem and their sense of, sense of self and put it in the hands of the people of whether they praise them or not. That's a terrible thing to do. But we tend to do that a lot. So here's the thing I want you to replace that question with. Right? When we say, what does God want my child to become? What's his plan for them? Here's an overall summary statement of what God wants. All right? You've heard me say it a couple times. Uh, God wants our children to become Christ-like men and women who enter into the joy of loving God and others more than themselves. And, and what I want you to notice about this is that this is a character description, not a behavioral description, okay? So, so what it really means, character comes from how we see ourselves and the world around us and how we act based on what we see. So what this is, is what God's desire for your child is, no matter what stage of life they're in, is to see themselves as people who will find joy by loving God and others more than themselves, right? Not, not like this is the duty I've got to perform if I'm going to be a good Christian. That's not it. It is this really is where joy comes from. Joy comes from me loving God and others more than myself. And that's a character statement, okay? Well, like, okay, so look at this, and you think, all right, well, oh, that's easy, no problem, I can do that tomorrow. Uh, that, this is really hard, all right? Just like, like, if we could just be honest with each other and say, this is a really challenging thing, right? So, so, so how, how, this is what parenting is about, but how in the world do we do this, right? Because it does seem a whole lot easier to be like, let me just find something they're good at and spend enough money for them to be a little bit better than anybody else, and then people praise them, and then they kind of survive, and they get to a stage of adulthood where they figure it out on their own, right? That's, it's like, that feels easier than this, uh, and, and, but here's the sad thing. In some ways, it's easier, but it was just not going to work. Like if we really look at how the kind of the standard way parenting is working today, and we just ask ourselves, how well is that going? And we look at what's going on with our kids. It's disastrous. It really is terrible. Like, like this is not a good, like our strategy, our cultural strategy for parenting is not a good one. And kids are being hurt and parents are confused. And so uh, it's a, it's, parents are really struggling and kids are really struggling. So I need you to hear some really good news from me right now. I need you all to hear that God is not at all confused 
God is not confused as to why your kid is here. God is not confused about what to do with your kid. God is not confused about what is good for them, what a plan is for them. God knows exactly who they are, exactly why they're here, why they're here at this place, at this time, what is best for them, why he shaped them the way he did. God knows all of that. He is not confused. And here's the other really, really, really good thing about parenting that I want us to remember is that when we parent, if you're a Christian, when you're parenting, you are co-parenting with God. That's very good news. We co-parent with the God who knows exactly what to do, with the God who is not confused. And let me just, my wife and I have been, been just talking about this a little bit, about what's so good about the fact that we co-parent with God. And, and one of the things is it comes from Psalm 23. It comes from the second to last stanza of Psalm 23, which says this. It says, surely... Your goodness and love will follow me. And that's a word for pursue. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. That's true for our children. Like the God we co-parent with is the God who will pursue our children with goodness and love all the days of their life. That's such good news to me. And then even in my parenting, God is pursuing me with his goodness and his love all the days of my life. So there will, there will never be a day in the life of your child that God as their good shepherd is not pursuing them in his goodness and his love. And so I, I, I love that. And so because this is so good, because we co-parent with God, here's the question I want us to kind of wrestle with. Uh, how, how do we enter into, how do we do that? How do we join God and what God is doing with our kids? Because that's really key, right? So, so how do we kind of like, what is God going to do in all this? How do we enter into this with him, right? How do we kind of work with him on this? And so let me just give you a couple of things around that. Here's one that's really important. It's important to know that one of the ways that God works in our children's lives is indirectly by him working directly on us as their parent, okay? So in parenting, right, like it's easy, like we have this ability as a parent to, to notice how messed up our kids are and how much we want them to not be, right? So it's like that's a major theme in parenting. And one of the things that happens to us is it gives us the ability to hide from our own brokenness and our own need to grow, right? I know in my own life, like there are these moments when I just, I noticed that God was making me really uncomfortable about stuff I needed to grow in. And it was really easy for me to say, yeah, but look at that kid right there. My kids, I mean, let's, let's put the attention over here because like clearly this needs. And so, so it's easy to deflect our own need for growth by the fact that our children need to grow. That's a trap we need to avoid as parents. Because one of the main ways, one of the things that this guy's going to do, he's going to work in the lives of our children indirectly by working on the lives of us as parents. So do not do this whole, yeah, I need to grow and they need to grow, but they're the kid. I'm going to focus on that. Never stop focusing on their, their growth, but never, never stop focusing on yours. Like, like, like children expose our need to grow unlike anything else. Like what we, what tends to really bother us about our kids are the things that are bothering us about us. And so our kids reveal so much about our own brokenness. And we need to be able to bring that to God and say, God, I, I need you to work in me on this, even as I and you are working together with them, all right? So, so don't miss that. God works indirectly 
in our kids' lives, but working directly in our lives as parents, all right? Then, uh, God also works directly in the lives of our kids. And so this is good news, too. Uh, if your child is a believer, if you, they've entrusted themselves to Jesus uh, to make them right with God, this is the really cool thing. One of the things that happens is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within your child. And, and, and guess how, how, how old the Holy Spirit is that comes inside your child? Like the full age, right? Like they don't have a child version of the Holy Spirit. They get the whole Holy Spirit, right? That's what I say. Like it's a pretty, like, like, and you're like, you and like you'll hear it like you'll hear something coming out of the mouth of your child and you're like there's no way that came from that kid that's the holy spirit coming you know so so we get to see and acknowledge that the same holy spirit that's in us the whole the, the, the holy spirit who's fully god is is indwelling our children that's really good news and that holy spirit is working them another thing that works directly in the lives of our children is the bible and uh, this has been i think interesting for my wife Cindy and I to kind of see in our lives at this stage of our lives. We can both look back on our lives and see how much of an impact being exposed to the Bible as children has had on us now in ways we weren't really able to see until more recently. And so the Bible is living and active, and the Bible interacts with children in a really powerful way. Like, like it seems like they don't get it. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot that's there. And, I, and I'm sure when I was, I know, there, I know what I was like when I was a kid, uh, I see now things in my life that God was doing in me through his word that I didn't understand as a child that I'm just beginning to see now. So the Bible works in the lives of our kids. Don't neglect that. Even if, they just, even if it doesn't seem like it's doing anything, it's doing more than you think. Another one, the way that God works directly in the lives of our children is through the church, which is why we make the kind of commitments we made today, right? This is, this is one of the beautiful things about being in a church is the way that God will speak through other people and show kids aspects of themselves that we can't show them, right? So if you know my oldest son, he's very orderly. He's very organized. Like he's got, he's like really got things mapped out well. I am not like that, Right? Cynthia, not so much either. So, so like we, 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 when we look at him and we're like, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. And so the great thing is within this church, he would see that wiring in him and some of you. And he was able to say, okay, that's what it looks like for someone wired like me to love God through, through people in this church. Right? And this is true for all of my kids. He's just the most obvious example. But there's ways in which like there's aspects of them that I, I don't know what to do with. But they, the, the other people in the body of Christ are able to say, yeah, I get that. I'm like that. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be a person wired like that. So that, that's an amazing thing, right? And then the last thing, though, I'll talk about today is, is God not only works indirectly in the life of a child through the parent, God works directly through the parent in the life of the child. In fact, the way in which God is the most direct and working in the life of a child is through the parents. And we get a picture of what this is supposed to look like in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 7. So it's talking to parents first. and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, which is, which is part of your character as a parent. Then from your heart and out of your character, it goes to verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, these are the commands of God, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. All right? So here's the pattern. 
It starts with the parents setting God as their highest love and greatest pursuit. That's where it begins. And then out of the parents setting God as their highest love and greatest pursuit, they love what God loves, okay? And out of loving what God loves, this is where the Bible comes in because the Bible shows us what God loves and the Bible gives us commands and commands are invitations to join God in what he loves, okay? Commands are not hoops you jump through to be accepted by God. The commands in the Bible are invitations to join God in what God loves. So the parent sets God aside as their highest love and greatest pursuit. They, they come to the Bible to say, this is how I connect in my love for God. And so they live the commands of God out of love for God. Okay? From there, they teach their kids how to look at the world through the eyes of the parent who's living in this way, and the parent's able to teach the child in formal ways and informal ways, all of these different ways to set God as your highest priority, greatest pursuit, highest love, how to see the Bible as a thing that draws you into that love. That's what we do. Easy peasy, right? Nothing, nothing, nothing to it, right? <laughs> so here's the thing. This is the model, and it makes total sense, right? This is how it works, but this is daunting, I'm not going to do this, but I was about to say, kids, raise your hand if your parents are doing great at this, but I'm not going to do it to you. Um, I mean, this is, this is a daunting thing. And what we need to know is no parent does this perfectly. Like, no, there's no parent that ever has or ever will do this perfectly. And so while, while the truth of this model is so helpful for us, it shows us where to go, shows us the target to set, that the path to move ourselves to in our parenting, it also shows us that we need grace. It shows us that, that this, we're not going to get there on our own. The only way we get there is by the gracious enablement of God. And we also need grace for the ways we don't get there. We need grace for the ways we have failed in this. And so here's what I love about this. This passage that gives us this beautifully clear picture that we wish we could fulfill also shows us our need for grace, both grace in the ways we haven't fulfilled it and grace to be able to grow into it. And that combination of knowing the truth and receiving grace held together by love is the way we grow, all right? So if we're gonna join God and what he's doing to co-parent with us, the way God causes growth is by grace and truth held together in love. All right, let me show you where I'm getting this. I'm going to unpack it some more. I don't have as much time to nerd out on it as I'd like. But um, in Ephesians, this is what I want you to see. The Apostle Paul interconnects grace and love. So just one little example, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Okay, that's love twice there. Then he rephrases all of that and he says, by grace you've been saved. Okay. So you see him, he's going to do this in, in, in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 7. He does this in the early part of chapter 3. He does this all through the book of Ephesians. So it's easy to read. You can find it yourself. But here's what I want you to see. What he's doing is he's connecting grace and love together. And then he says this amazing thing in Ephesians 4, 13 through 15 about how, how God grows people. This is what he says. Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature or full-grown adulthood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, like that's the goal, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, right? So we don't want to be. So rather than that, here's how we grow. Speaking truth in this grace-love combination, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And so the way that God grows all of us, the way he grows you, the way he grows your children, is in a combination of grace and truth held together by love. Let me try to, to unpack how that works. So, so grace is what initiates and, and, and establishes and <clears throat> maintains. Hang on. I've been passionate today, so I'm losing my voice. Grace uh, establishes and maintains the security of the relationship, okay? So, so grace says you are loved <clears throat> even though you get things wrong, and that, makes, that, that allows us to be safe within a relationship. It allows us to acknowledge, okay, I'm loved, I'm safe, but I need to grow. The truth then shows us what we need to avoid and the direction in which we need to grow, and love holds them together. And this is, this is important because all of us as parents know it is so much easier to swing to just grace or just truth than to have those be in tension in a state of love. Like it's so much easier to be like, oh, I love you, do whatever you want, or you better do the right thing, right? It's, it's, one of, it's easier to go one of those two routes than to hold those together in a loving way that says, even if you get it wrong, I'm going to love you, but I'm also going to show you how to move toward what's best for you, okay? And so what it does in a, a parent-child relationship is the grace, grace lets the child know they're loved no matter what. Truth is what guards and guides them into what they need to become. And then love continually integrates those two things together in the relationship for the child, all right? But this is also important for us as parents. Like, we need to be able to receive the grace and the love of God, um, this is important for me personally. Like, it's important for me to be able to know the grace of God says to me, I am loved even though I've messed up my kids. I am loved even though I've made mistakes with my kids. The most painful mistakes in my life are the mistakes that I've made with my kids. And if it were not for the grace of God to tell me I'm still loved, I'd pull away from that, and I would not move toward God's redemption, restoration, and repair. So grace enables me to sustain myself in that relationship where I failed and look to God to begin to restore and redeem and repair that. Truth is what helps that happen. Truth is what helps me know how to repair, how to restore, how to redeem, where to go with this. Uh, and love for me allows me to, to know that both for myself and for my kids, uh, grace and truth are held together in a way that the goodness and mercy of God is pursuing me and them every day of our lives. So, so, so that's, that's a really good thing. So the way that we partner with God in parenting is by knowing that God grows people through grace and truth held together by love, joining God in showing that to our kids and receiving that for ourselves as parents, okay? I hope that gives you a framework for this. It's pretty simple, but it's really, really powerful, all right? So what I want to do next then is I want to extend that 
context of truth and uh, of grace and love held together by, I'm sorry, grace and truth held together by love. I want to extend that into one of the most challenging aspects of parenting, and that's boundary setting. That's one of the hardest things there is to being a parent. It's, it's so hard to kind of know the right ways to set the boundaries that keep your child moving toward having a character uh, that finds joy in loving God and others more than themselves, right? That's hard, that's hard to do. And it changes as kids change in ages. So what I'm going to do, just for fun, I'm going to give you some of the hardest ways to do this right now and just make you wrestle with it, right? I don't have great answers for you, um, but I can just kind of reveal, like, we need to be talking about this. We need to be praying about this together as a church. And, uh, and so off we go with that. So here's one of the boundaries that I think is really challenging for parents right now, and we got to really wrestle through, and that's the boundary of knowing, knowing how to set boundaries around emotional safety for kids, which is relatively new. It's relatively new within the last 20 years, as far as I can tell. Like prior to that, when I was growing up, the, the concern that parents had were boundaries around physical safety. Like at what age is what, you know, overprotection and underprotection when it comes to physical safety for our kids? We've had a lot of time to figure that out, right? So people have a general sense of what that looks like. We, we don't have near as clear a picture when it comes to the emotional safety of our kids. And the emotional safety of our kids is a much bigger deal now than I think it's ever been. So one of the things that parents need to really be praying through and working through and talking to other people about, talking to each other about, talking to their kids about, is where is the like, appropriate way to understand boundaries around being overprotective and underprotective when it comes to the emotional safety of our kids. All right, I don't want us to miss that, all right? Uh, the second thing, um, these get less popular as I go. So uh, the second thing are our phones, internet, social media, um, and setting boundaries around that. This is really, really hard, right? And I've seen, I've seen this over and over and over. I, kids, I just let me talk to you a little bit. I know that it's, it's so... It's so easy to get frustrated over the fact that a lot of you, your parents will set boundaries around these things that make you feel like they're still treating you like a little kid when your peers, people your same age, have far less boundaries around these things than you do. And I know that's really, really frustrating. I know for parents that's a difficult thing. I, I just I know this is a challenging thing. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of my experience and some of the things that I've been learning as I've been trying to help us understand this better. Uh, from my own experience, I wish... I had been better with our boundaries around these things with our kids. So if I could go back and do it over, I would be more conservative with my boundaries with my kids around the internet, phone, social media, okay? I've also read stuff, and it's not hard to, like, if you just Google, is social media good for your kids? Everybody will say no, right? So we all say no, but we all ignore that because um, it's just really hard. And so I just, I, I want you, if you're a kid, to know, I, I get it, I feel it. Because uh, someone who loves you and is someone who just wants to enter into the, the difficulty of this with your parents, I just encourage parents to, 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 to lean toward less than more when it comes to this, okay? So it gets worse from there. Um, the, the, the third boundary I, I want us to talk about setting is boundaries around sexuality and compassion. And, uh, and here's what I mean about that. Um, the, the Bible is really, really clear when it comes to boundaries about sexuality regarding uh, sexuality as male and female, uh, marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman, sex is reserved for marriage, those kind of, the Bible's super clear about that, okay? Now, I know you can find people who say it's not, all right? And I've been curious about that. So I've read all the things, I, like, I, I would be surprised if you could give me a new argument for someone said, the Bible's not clear about that, right? Because I've read all those, 
And they're all based on you not knowing much about the Bible, you not knowing much about Jewish history, and you not knowing much about Christian history. Right? So they're, they're, if you know anything about those, those arguments aren't good ones. And so I just I want you to know I've, I've, I've done my work to try to understand this, and um, the Bible is very, very clear about the matters. They're not fuzzy at all. Here's what gets fuzzy. Where people struggle with this in the Christian space is typically because they have first adopted an unbiblical view of compassion, and that is skewing the way that they see the boundaries the Bible has on sexuality. So so let me try to explain that. Um, A biblical view of compassion is this. A biblical view of compassion is I will enter into your pain. I will enter into your struggle as long as it's there. That's a biblical view of compassion. So if someone is wrestling with somebody, something, and, and, and there's just a, a source of pain, a, a, a Christian view, a biblical view of compassion is, I'm, I'm going to share that pain with you, which costs us a lot. Okay? An unbiblical view of compassion says, I want the pain to go away. I just want it to be gone. Whatever it takes to get rid of the pain, let's do that. That's an unbiblical view of compassion. That doesn't cost us very much. And often what happens is it does more damage to the person who's being shown that kind of compassion rather than true biblical compassion. So, so true biblical compassion also creates more conflict, but it actually creates more healing. Unbiblical compassion creates next to no conflict because basically what it says is, I really don't want you to deal with, I don't want to deal with your pain. I don't want you to deal with your pain. Do whatever you need to do to get rid of your pain, right? So, so an unbiblical view of compassion is one that says, I, I, don't, I don't want your pain to access me. There's another way that there's an unbiblical response that we use to guard ourselves from the pain of others, and that's judgment. And that's wrong too. It's deeply wrong for us to say, I don't want you to bring your pain to me, so I'm going to judge you for being in pain. That's terrible. It's not Christ-like, Okay. And so, so where we get in trouble is if we have this unbiblical view of compassion that says, I just want the pain to go away. And we look at the boundaries that the Bible gives around this and like, there, there's, that creates a lot of tension. And so the question is, are we going to enter into that tension no matter how long it takes, no matter what it means? Are we going to walk with somebody through that, share their pain with them, which really creates deep relationships with people? Or am I going to pull away from that? And am I going to say, just do whatever you need to do to get the pain to go away? And so, so that when we, if we, if we have the wrong view of compassion, this really gets muddled. And let me just say this: uh, it is really difficult for teenagers to to embrace biblical compassion. And let me tell you why. If you're a teenager, what's happening to you at this stage of your life is you're seeing the world open up in bigger and bigger ways, and what you're seeing is an awful lot of pain. You didn't see that. A lot of pain you didn't see when you were younger. Now you have to see. And you're like, this is terrible. We need this pain to go away. And and so if you're a teenager, it's really, really attractive to have somebody say there's a form of compassion that just makes it go away. That's why there's a lot of tension around biblical versus unbiblical compassion, especially among teenagers. Because in your desire... In your sense of being overwhelmed by the pain, it's, it's so tempting to say, I just want it to go away, rather than I need to figure out how to walk with people through the pain. And this, this, this becomes a tension point for parents and kids a lot. So let me, let me just tell you to ask you to do this. 
If you're in a tension place around this topic, here's where I want you to begin. I want you to begin talking about the pain you feel. I want you to begin talking about how it feels for you just to look at the world in a bigger way than you have before and see how much pain there is in it. I want you to talk about how scary that is for you. I want you to talk about how overwhelming that is for you. I want you to talk to your parents about that. I want you to start there and let the Bible kind of guide you into Jesus is the one who left heaven and loved us by entering into all that pain. And Jesus is the one who walks us through it, okay? That's where I want us to go with that. So uh, let me just give you one more thing. Let me end on a funner note. Uh, we do, one of the things we do for training camp is we just give you ways to connect. So things to do when you go home to connect. So uh, here's what I want to do. If you have your phone, um, as I know, the kids were like, didn't you say we shouldn't? Uh, if you had, come on. If you have your phone, uh, you can take a, take a picture of that. Use that uh, QR code. It will take you to uh, a full sheet of what's called Soul Words. If you don't have a phone, I respect you for that. So I've printed these in hard copies out on the, on the foyer. So you can grab one of those as well. But here's what I want you to do. This is a list of emotional words. And I want you to play a game. I want you to come up with a game that allows you to have the people in your relationships find a way to like say, this is when I felt one of these words, okay? So that's what you get to do. That's your drill. That's the fun. Let me pray for all of you. Here we go. Well, Father... I do thank you that Jesus taught us to come to you in prayer as a parent, as a father. Thank you for being that to us. I thank you that you continue to parent us and you parent us with grace and truth that is held together by love. Thank you that you pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. God, thank you that, that your love pursues our children all the days of their lives. And so, Father, help us to stay in step with you as we co-parent with you at all the stages of our kids' lives. Help us to, to parent them with grace and truth held together by love. In Jesus' name, amen.